So, so I think we'll get started. Why don't you, you guys sitting in the back? Why don't you come join the table? That's a convenient excuse I always use too. But, but okay. Um, so my name is Bill Garflink, and this is the series on careers and development. And today we have with us Alan Jury, and I think you you guys have his his bio. But he's the head of the Washington office of the World Food Program. And for a few years before that, almost a decade, he was in Rome, a tough assignment, uh, head of the policy unit for the World Food Program and then external relations for WFP as well. And then uh, before all of that, he's had a very long career in the State Department and uh, dealt a lot with refugee issues and humanitarian issues and served in Geneva and Bangkok, uh, Philippines, and somehow you got the Netherlands in there. Yeah, I that was not one of my <laughs> refugee assignments, I, I can tell you that. I kind of think not. So anyway, uh, Alan has had a long career in the United States government, in foreign affairs, and in uh, the World Food Program. So he's, he's got kind of a unique perspective on, on the uh, U.S. government and, and international organizations. And he's also played a big role in the changing approaches to food aid that WFP has developed over the past few years. So with that, it'll be interesting to turn it over to you, Alan, and talk a little bit about food, and then talk a little bit about careers. Very good. I my own here. Yeah, we've got plenty of mics. Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be here. It's great to be part of the series. Uh, you know, I've seen some of the people that have spoken to this series, and they really are some of the giants in sort of humanitarian development. Uh, you know, when you see all these p the people that are suddenly talking and you've known them for all these time, and you don't know whether that means you've arrived or you've passed. It's a little bit of a combination <laughs> of both. Bill and I have known each other for quite a long time. Uh, Don Steinberg, who was one of the speakers in this, actually, when I get to my career, actually, we were in the same foreign service class together nearly well, over 30 years ago. So. Um, so, uh, the talk here is a, today with sort of innovation and resilience in food assistance. And I wanted to talk about this topic uh, because I think many of you may know something about the World Food Program and, and, and certainly the biggest part of our activities are in the sort of humanitarian relief and that's probably where we're both best known for. But I think a lot of that is known. Um, I'm happy to answer questions and talk that aspect of it when we, when we have time for questions. But I thought some of our engagement, some of our new partnerships and new approaches to food assistance that, that address longer-term resilience, that try to uh, not just deal with the immediate emergency, but to try to reduce risk and vulnerability, to, to have, take a longer-term approach, it's it's kind of a combination of development and humanitarianism. And at, at this time, when resilience is sort of the topic, the word of the moment uh, in, uh, in much of the world, particularly in the links between relief and development, it's, it's a quite timely discussion. So what I'm going to try to do in sort of the 25 to 30 minutes I speak here is sort of four main things, sort of outline the sort of conceptual framework for the role of food assistance in resilience and disaster preventives in mitigation. Uh, secondly, go over some of the practical aspects of how this is applied, most particularly in the work of the World Food Program. Uh, thirdly, talk about some of the innovative partnerships that we've had both with the private, particularly with the private sector, to try to take forward some of these uh, 
these concepts and then conclude, as Bill said, with a little bit, as I gather this series has, on sort of my own career path. How's it gone? How did I get into this, um, into this field? Now, it's really a good time to really sort of talk about resilience in the sort of conceptual framework. I don't know if how many of you are aware that USAID had a major launch on Monday of its own policy and program guidance on resilience. It was quite a big event for USAID. They had the administrator, Raj Shah. They had Gail Smith from the NSC, who's the, the, the senior director involved in uh, development and humanitarian assistance, and a number of NGO leaders, the ambassador of Kenya. So it was quite a significant development. And, uh, and USAID is putting a lot of emphasis on this. And there have been aspects of this in the G8, in the G20. Um, and I think it's a, it's a real driving concept, particularly with regard to the Horn of Africa and Sahel. Uh, regions and sort of the post-disaster, post-drought environment there. Uh, maybe we start with, there's no uniform definition of what resilience is, uh, but I think most people, WP's concepts, other concepts are, are similar. And to give a sort of basic underline, outline, I thought why not use the recently released USA definition, which was in their policy, which says, resilience is the ability of people, households, communities, countries, and systems to mitigate, adapt to, and recover from shocks and stresses in a manner that reduces chronic vulnerability and facilitates inclusive growth. Um, I think most people would at least go through the reduced chronic vulnerability. The broader concept to facilitate inclusive growth is probably the, the broadest concept of resilience, and I think this is one of the challenges, I think, of the whole resilience dimension is, is when it's everything, what is it, you know, what it includes everything, is there anything it doesn't include? And I think, but most people would at least go as far as the, as the first part of that definition, certainly the World Food Program is. How can we think about applying assistance, both in a development and a humanitarian context, that increases the coping capacities of communities, individuals, and broader government systems to deal with shocks. It's a paradigm that looks at disaster and shocks, and the community uses shocks because, I mean, in traditionally it would be sort of said disasters, but it's broader than that, because it can be economic shocks, it can be natural disasters, it can be conflicts. It looks at these things not as sort of aberrative events that, you know, you have development and then suddenly, oops, something completely unexpected happens. But it recognizes that shocks, particularly in fragile and vulnerable societies, are inevitable. Uh, and that the, you have to build processes in to sort of deal with them and to increase capacity with, to cope with them or you're actually putting kind of blinders on your eyes about what development is. And the World Bank had a major report on natural disasters several years ago that made this point. They said they made this conceptual shift to sort of say, we, we have to stop thinking about disaster. In their case, they were specifically talking about disaster risk mitigation. We have to stop thinking about natural disasters as some sort of completely extraneous factor that just sort of jumps in and recognize that they are part of the cycle. And this is why, you know, you've had quotes from people that say there really is no such thing as a natural disaster because everybody has climatic variations. They're all man-made because it's all about how you develop your coping mechanisms and the capacities of your societies to respond. Now, looking at specifically at sort of the role of food in this, 
for the really chronically vulnerable, food represents 70, 80, 85% of income. So when you're talking about livelihood and coping, for the poorest of the poor, food has an extraordinarily large component. I mean, for all of us, it's a vital aspect, but our livelihoods and our needs are much broader than that for traditional developing countries. Uh, developed countries, you know, food is 5 to 10 percent of income, maybe a little higher among the poor. Um, but for really chronically vulnerable people, you know, you can be talking upwards of 80 percent of most of their income is being applied to food. So food has a particular role in looking at vulnerability. And what a food assistance model can look at, if you're looking at it in terms of longer-term development and resiliency, is to think of it not just as a meeting, cons meeting immediate consumptive needs, but providing a platform for taking advantage of those opportunities of meeting immediate consumptive needs to also address and build assets that have broader impact on reducing vulnerability in the future, diversifying livelihoods, and essentially making a community less vulnerable to the shocks of the future. Um, this is probably easiest to do in practical terms when you're talking about meteorological shocks because we sort of know what does drought do, what is its scientific effects. It's probably more challenging when you're talking about mitigation and resiliency in conflict situations which are much more complex and unpredictable. But it's not impossible to even think about resiliency to, to conflict-related factors as well. If that's the sort of concept, what is what we're trying to do is to make food assistance, and I, I specifically use the word food assistance because it's broader than food aid. The traditional image of food aid is, is food in-kind commodities shipped from usually a developed donor society to another country and distributed to meet immediate consumption needs. The current toolbox of food assistance is much broader than that. It involves certainly some commodities, but it also involves local purchase and purchase near the source that affects that can be involved in markets. It involves cash and vouchers that can actually allow the market to provide the food needs rather than the food assist food aid agency delivering in kind. And it also means a focus on nutrition and targeted food products that have a broader benefit in terms of longer-term development. So WP's current strategy, sort of underlying principle of its current five-year strategy, is a transformation of WFP from a food aid to a food assistance agency to broaden those range of tools to increase the use of specialized nutritional products to dramatically scale up the amount of local and regional purchase and to consistently grow in terms of the use of cash and voucher systems uh, in addition to delivering traditional food aid. Now as we look at the sort of practical areas, sort of moving from that conceptual framework to what, so what, what does this mean in practice? And I would say there are three primary areas where this use of food assistance to increase resilience, build livelihoods can be applied. In almost all cases, they are really at the community level. There are other aspects of resilience done through other kinds of development funding that properly and should 
address more systemic issues. How do you build resilient governments? How do you build resilient institutions? And they should be applied together with this. But food assistance is probably best suited at the sort of bottom up, at the community level, uh, individual family level. Indeed, one of the reforms of food aid over the last 25 years is that food for assets and food for work programs that were sort of really top-down, very large road products, uh, 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 activities and things were not necessarily the most effective. So it's at the community level. And I would say there are, as I said, three broad areas. One is what WFP would refer to as food for assets. Um, historically, maybe food for work, but it's a little broader than that. And the concept here is that during periods when chronically vulnerable people have a consumption shortfall, and during periods where they have that consumption shortfall, but they don't have demands on their labor, for example, it's not the harvest season or it's not the planting season in rural communities, or they lack productive assets to employ their labor, that you can meet the consumptive needs for a three to six month period, but you can combine it with work-related activities to build physical assets, such as irrigation, agricultural rehabilitation, uh, terracing, a variety of activities, community roads, uh, community grain warehouses, and other types of facilities, assets that will increase the resilience of the community by allowing them to mitigate shocks, by allowing them to keep food, store food for a longer period, be less vulnerable and more diversified in their livelihoods. That's the food for work component. The reason we use for food for assets is that it's equally possible to do this where you're not doing work and producing a physical asset, but when you're involved in some sort of training activity, you're developing your skill base. We have a very large program in Bangladesh targeted on ultra-poor villages, uh, particularly women, that most of the time they will get like a ration, a family ration for three to four months and get training in a range of productive activities uh, that have already been tested and have partners who've shown that if you take the time to develop them, they can diversify your livelihood. A very common one is poultry raising. If you have, because it can be done on very small plots of land, it can supplement nutritionally with the eggs, your own family, and you can also make a small um, money by selling uh, the products. But that's just one example. So this food for assets, food for work, food for training is a way in which you can combine the consumption with targeted activities that allow people to build productive assets that will reduce their vulnerability to future risk. And the kinds of activities that you design really need to be very context-specific and very addressed at the particular vulnerabilities that, that, that are faced by that community. And that is, I think, one of the challenges of resilience programming. It has to be much more context-specific than sort of general food distribution, where you're just doing, okay, we know biologically how many calories people need, how many nutrients there are. To some extent, I don't want to say one size fits all because there's still distribution modalities, there's still local dietary preferences, but frankly for classic emergency general feeding, it's easier to bring in a template off the shelf from your emergency manual with limited adjustments. That is almost never going to be the case with this context specific uh, 
type of work. And indeed, evaluations we've done have shown that when the partnership you have and when the program design is effective in identifying the assets, showing which assets really do affect resilience, the program can have significant results. When either your, your non-food partner, because this usually involves a partnership between an agency, in this case WFP, but it can be an NGO, who's more specialized in the food assistance side with somebody who's more specialized in the technical aspects of whatever asset you're building, whether that's irrigation, whether that's terrace construction, whether that's a training program. If you have good partners and you have well-designed programs, these can produce results. When the, not so much, you still get the consumption results. People still eat food and don't get hungry during that three months, but you're not going to have as much success in the broader asset creation aspect of it. A second area where I think food assistance, the new style of food assistance, can sort of contribute to larger term resilience is in programs designed to increase market linkages and to help develop the market capacity to diversify livelihoods at the local areas. And there are two things that we do that are particularly related to this. One is taking advantage of our large food procurement footprint to try to see if for a portion of that food procurement at the local level we can use it to help draw in smallholder farmer cooperatives, farmer associations, and give them a chance to begin to participate more effectively in the market, to sell at a higher quality, to not be so dependent on what is traditionally the situation for many smallholders, which is they have no storage and no processing facility, and once they harvest, they just got to sell as is, where is. Uh, they have no capacity to adjust for the price time. They, they often get a low price because they don't, in the case of grain, have simple things for drying the grain. So, you know, a local literally guy on a bicycle practically comes by and says, look, we'll, we'll take your grain off at, at exactly as it is, wet, maybe insect infested. So we have developed a program called Purchase for Progress, P for P for short. It's operating in 21 countries. Uh, in Africa, Latin America, and in Asia. It's uh, supported, uh, the initial support for it primarily came from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but we also have support from the Howard Buffett Foundation, particularly concentrated in Latin America portion of the program, um, and a number of governments have contributed. It has so far uh, probably been the largest targeted program to buy basic grain and basic pulse commodities rather than specialized crops um, from smallholder farmers in the world. We've already contracted in the, we're in the fourth year of a five-year pilot. We've already contracted over 270,000 tons, had over 170,000 tons delivered to us. Uh, direct purchases from smallholder farmers, uh, 60, over $65 million. And this has helped us learn and develop what do we need to bring to smallholder farmers? What kinds of things do they need to more effectively participate in the marketplace? And how, by bringing them into the marketplace, can we help a more resilient community by being more having a more stronger market linkages for smallholder farmers? 
Another way that you can help build resilience and livelihood diversification and market development in the food assistance business is, in, is where markets are beginning to function is greater reliance on cash and voucher programs rather than the deliver of in-kind assistance. And this is, from a small base, one of our fastest expanding areas. Um, in now, in, in most urban settings, um, and even in some rural settings where markets are working well, we will do programs using cash or voucher activities. Um, we'll, in a voucher type program, typically we would work with some network of stores, whether they're government shops or they're a set of cooperatives of some sort. They would agree to be participants in the voucher program. There would be a uh, limited number of commodities that they could offer, um, and we develop some sort of system whereby we, re we reimburse people, reimburse the stores when the vouchers are redeemed. Uh, in more sophisticated markets, like part of the Middle East, this is heavily digitalized. We have literally food cards you can go in. We can have developed with store at the store level where we can literally, on an almost real-time basis, figure out what people are buying, what level of nutritional product. There are a number of benefits for this. One is dietary diversification, uh, which is real benefits to nutrition, um, and the development areas where I think we work on sort of stimulating and using market mechanisms to, to at least indirectly increase resilience and diversify livelihoods. And I think the third area that we're working on Oops, better move faster. Uh, on uh, is on the area of nutritional assistance, and and there I think the resilience debate and the asset building is should be fairly clear. Although it takes a little more explaining because it seems like a one-time feeding program, but when you look at the basic science on nutrition, for those of you who spend time on nutrition. We've learned a lot in the last 10 years, and one of the things we've really learned is that particularly in the so-called thousand days, which many of you have heard of, the, from pregnancy to, through the first two years of life, this is a one-time opportunity for brain and physical development. And in a sense, if you don't get the right nutrients at that time in lives, people lose productivity and assets throughout life. Um, we've done studies in Latin America where it's estimated that the loss of productivity for somebody who doesn't have proper nutrition in this period is up to 10% of lifetime's learn, uh, earnings, and with area and in countries with significant undernutrition or malnutrition, it can affect two to three percent of GDP per year. So, by addressing nutritional needs with more specialized products and more targeted activities for nutrition, we can better enable people to build lifetime assets that will reduce the vulnerability, particularly of small children, but also adults, to temporary shortages in foods and temporary shocks later on. And so we're certainly intensifying our activities in this area, which there's a lot of exciting opportunities because there's a lot of scientific developments that have allowed the development of products. And in the interest of time, I'm not going to go too much on the nutritional side, but I can answer questions that people are interested, that make it e much easier to do targeted nutritional activities in a community-based, independent setting rather than the classic clinical setting, which had traditionally been the case and which obviously posed limitations because the number of mother-child health clinics in most developing countries is very low. The distribution network, if you're dependent on a clinical setting, really 
inhibits your capacity to go to scale. So very quickly sort of moving through some of the key partnerships that have helped us do that. I've already talked about the foundation partnerships. We've done a lot in these areas in the corporate sector. In nutrition, for example, we've worked with companies like Kemen, which is based in Iowa, with DSM, which is a major nutrition-based country based in the Netherlands, to help us with things like packaging solutions, to help us things with scientific formulations, taking advantage of the, of the food processing and food packaging industry to really provide us both cash and expertise that allows us to move much faster than this in the area than if we had to do all the capacity in the house. We have a partnership with MasterCard designed to help us improve the uh, systems that we use in digital food in these, in these cash and voucher programs. We have a partnership with the Pepsi, PepsiCo um, in Ethiopia that's looking at how they can do a supply chain development that increases local chickpea production uh, for a range of products, including things that are completely commercially viable, but at the low end produces a specialized nutritional product that we can use in these nutritional programs. And we have a partnership with the Korean electronics firm LGE that is at this stage mainly a cash donation designed to support food for assets and cash for work programs in a number of African countries that focus on that, that food for assets, food for work area. I think one of the keys in developing all these programs is to really bring in the technical expertise, whether it's foundations, private sector, or, or other NGOs, because the key, as I said, it gets back to what I started with, for these kinds of resilience programmings, the food has to be combined with a real knowledge of markets, of asset creation, and that's really, if you're a food assistant agency, that's where your partnerships are key. That's what they bring to the table to make the programs effective. So that's, that's sort of where we are and some thoughts to at least think about on the, the uh, innovation in food assistance. Let me conclude with what we said a little bit about my own career. Uh, you know, Somebody was saying at the beginning of this that uh, you've had a number of speakers and sort of the common seemed theme seemed to be that everybody sort of stumbled into this field almost by accident. I'm I'm a little bit different than that, but it it and and Bill alluded to it. I I started with uh, um, you know going to university thinking I was going to be involved in in the law or political science. That's what was my major is and got interested in international affairs, uh, particularly Asian studies. Uh, did a year abroad in, in Tokyo, Japan during my college years, met somebody who was in the Foreign Service, and I came back and took the U.S. Foreign Service exam. I mean, so I entered the U.S. State Department in a fairly conventional Foreign Service way. So I like to say I have three phases of my career. And the first phase was sort of a fairly traditional diplomatic career. About 12 years, I was a political officer doing you know, initially in Bangkok and the Philipp well, Philippines was the consular work, but that's like what everybody starts with on the visa line. Um, and then, uh, and it wasn't completely accidental. The second phase was, was ha I had become a Thai language officer, was in the mid-'80s. Um, there was a lot of focus in the Foreign Service on doing things that were more operational, developing your management experience, moving away from sort of 
classic diplomacy, developing other skills. And since I spoke Thai, had a lot of experience in Thailand, I was contacted by some people who were interested in seeing if I would go back to Thailand as the deputy refugee coordinator in 1987, which I did. And that sort of started my um, humanitarian career, as it would, in the State Department. And as, as Bill pointed out, for about the next 14 years in the State Department, I primarily worked on humanitarian and refugee programming. There were some little exceptions with the East Asia Bureau, but I was the Deputy Refugee Coordinator in Thailand. I was the Counselor for Humanitarian Affairs, Refugee Affairs at the U.S. Mission in Geneva. I was back with the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, PRM, in the State Department. Uh, I was also in the Regional Office in the East Asian Bureau. So that's where I became kind of a specialist in that area, what I'd call humanitarian diplomacy. Um, and then you really found that uh, while the State Department offered opportunities to do this kind of non-traditional work, they were never, they were always kind of ambivalent, really, as to whether it really was their mainstream. And, and in a sense, I hit a point where what I was doing and what I was interested in and what I was known for actually was worth more someplace else than it was in the State Department who sort of said, well, you get to a certain point, and you don't seem like a very traditional diplomat at this point. So I actually went, I, then I went to the United Nations. Now, uh, I went to the United Nations in a completely, not a completely unconventional, because most people who take a second career, it's always some inside track. Somebody brought them there, they had a friend. Uh, I actually applied to an external vacancy. I actually, a friend of mine brought it to my attention. They knew I'd worked with the UN before, primarily UNHCR. Um, and they had they were looking for somebody to be their deputy director of policy, and that's when I went over to WFP uh, in 2001. I was in in Rome for seven and a half years as director, of, deputy director of policy, the director of external relations, which for them at that time was relationships with the interagency UN community, and then here in the Washington <coughs> office. So that's sort of the third phase of the career was the the UN work. Uh, And it's, I must say that I found, and part of it is I think it's because of WFP, uh, the, the culture change from the U.S. government to the U.N. in WFP was not as great as I thought it might be. But I think that's part of it is WFP. WFP is one of the most operational sort of can-do. Uh, it has its challenges. Uh, what you know it has a challenge sometimes being strategic because it's so tactical and so can do it but because of that it has and historically it's been headed by an American for the last 20 years but I think it's more because of its culture it has a culture that is easier I think to adjust to uh, than some UN agencies for an, Ameri an American perspective uh, and, and that has made it easier. There are a couple things about the UN that are, the biggest one is, is human resource management, which is, which is, a, which is, has a number of set rules and bureaucracies that it's, it's probably the least flexible aspect of it, which comparing to the US civil service is saying a lot, but I think you could make a case that it's even less flexible than the US civil service. 
which I once described, and I think Bill would be amused, that, you know, whose rules are so flexible that I used to say you could only be fired from the U.S. Civil Service if you killed your boss, and I said that's actually not true. You have to kill two bosses because after the first boss, you have a plan for improvement. Uh, but <laughs> and then only if you fail to meet the plan for improvement do you uh, you have. But I, I think it's been an interesting transition, and uh, happy to answer questions. I taken a little more time than I thought I would, but that's always the case when you when you go uh, a little bit impromptu, but I tried to maintain a structure, and I'm looking forward to your thoughts. Well, let me ask you, uh, start out by asking you one question, and then we'll think about what you'd like to ask, because then I'll turn to you guys. Um, with the resiliency side of things that you've talked about, and the new emphasis on that in the World Food Program, how do donors react? Well, I think what you find is that donors are supportive conceptually and challenged by their own internal boxes about their funding. In other words, they're more forward-leaning on the concept of it and more challenged by how do they actually fund it um, because most of them have accounts and rules that are still kind of boxed in between humanitarian development. I, but even that, I think, is encouraging to the sense I would have said four or five years ago, if you went to our executive board, most of the developed countries, the donors, would have been very much with a line at WFP, you know, you got to focus on emergency, you shouldn't be moving this way. The U.S. was that way, but most of Northern Europe was that way. That's changed. I think they're much more open to, to us being involved in these areas, but they do face I – mean, they have two main questions again, a little bit like the resilience debate that I talked of at the beginning, don't let a definition of food assistance role in resilience become so all-encompassing that allows, that you're doing everything because you're not good at everything and you really shouldn't do everything. So, so be broader but still have limits within that broader conceptual framework. And that's why I said this emphasis on community uh, development and very specific institutional development related to the administration of practical solutions. For example, if somebody's running a national school feeding program as part of a, a targeted program of, of, of meeting uh, social safety nets, we can provide advice on how you develop those. But we're not a general institutional capacity development agency. We're an agency focused on practical solutions and practical programs. So I think if we stay within that, but the challenge of, of funding is a, is a challenging one. Uh, because with any multilateral organization, one of the great challenges is dividing a mechanism that has enough flexibility to accommodate everybody. Because, you know, you can't, you can't set it up and say, particularly if you're voluntary funded, we're 100 percent voluntary funded. We don't have any assessments at all. Government wants to give to us, they give to us. And we have to develop program and project structures that can accommodate the uniqueness of the U.S. and Europe and everybody else um, and has enough, enough universality to make it make sense to do multilateralism, but enough flexibility so that you don't get locked into something. So it's more the money than the concept at this stage, I would say. Interesting. Okay. Questions? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Karen. Um, I'm a long time Karen Meacham. Yeah. I haven't seen you for a while. Um, my question is right along those lines in dealing with flexibility versus uh, dictating what happens. If you're doing community-based development, things have to be very decentralized, right? So how do you make decisions and where do you draw the lines? I mean, I wrote down if you're going to do poultry raising, you know, 
then you have to get vaccines for the chickens. You have to, I mean, there's a whole, everything you do has another chain of events that follows. So how do you, how do you put limits down and, or do you just give the local community the decision-making power to draw those limits? Yeah, I think, well, part of it is, is the partnership. In most cases where we're doing what I would call the more complex food for asset programs, maybe not the one-time irrigation ditch type activity or one-time tree planting, which still require technical assistance, but of a lower level than the multi-layered activities like long-term poultry range monitor. You want a partner that has experience in those. I mean, in Bangladesh, we work very closely with BRAC, um, which is a well-known, very large NGO. Uh, you want somebody who has linkages to other activities. In P4P type programs where we're developing farmers' long-term capacity for marketing and processing of food, uh, we'll often be linking up with other NGOs who specialize in this. The Gates for Foundation, for example, may support us for very specific P4P things, but they will also support through AGRA or directly people who do more the technical agricultural part. But I, I, I do think that it is a critical issue to try to simplify the asset construction. And you, you need to rely on the community for leadership, but you need to think about how can we make the, the simplest form of community assets in areas where capacity is, is more limited. So, you know, in a place where you don't have strong technical follow-up, you might be more focused on food for work type, one-time infrastructure, small-scale infrastructure, the earthen dams, the, the, the simple community-based reforestation, not these large, massive, the construction of community food warehouses and things, rather than more longer-term things like poultry farming or new, new forms of enterprise development. Talk a little bit more about the um, P4P program and some of the market linkages, market linkages and market development. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, as you build up some of these local markets and linkages, what's sort of the long-term plan? Is it the hope that they'll eventually sort of these farmers will become productive and there will be external um, markets, or that WFP will sort of stay in some of these places long-term? You know, that there'll always be that future need. Well. I think our goal is to make them possible to survive even if we weren't there. Okay. At the same time, I, I, I think in areas where we have a consistent market presence, I wouldn't want a situation, I think we, we need to be careful, we are a market force, and to say they shouldn't sell it all to WP five years from now, if we're going to still be a market force and a player, uh, would be would be unfair as well. But. Basically, we try to focus on getting them to the point where they're selling their basic commodities at a level of quality that would be able to command a price uh, similar to what we're paying. We're fairly tough on this in not paying above market, and this issue comes up sometimes. People say, well, why don't, you know, you got to give them a little extra help, and why don't you pay a little bit above market prices, and we don't see the point. We would rather give them help with more targeted technical assistance rather than by price manipulation because then once there's a premium price which only WFP is paying, I mean there's just no way they can they can integrate. So we do have 
you know, we do have farmers that have already in some areas pulled out and pulled in and plugged into like uh, supermarket supply chains and other types of things um, that are able to market outside of WP. And that's certainly, that's certainly uh, a goal that we want to encourage um, in, in the program. And sometimes we do have defaults from time to time on different issues on our contracts. We have a higher rate of default on smallholder contracts than we do when we buy through traders, but we figured that we would when we um, but sometimes the defaults are because they are able to sell someplace else, and those I'm not sure we think are a bad default necessarily. They could be uh, more rapid development of alternative market opportunities than we might have originally projected. Well, I think I think at the systematic level they're 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 important they're very important. Our activities have focused more on the feeder and community roads, the linkages to the main trunk activities. Um, you know, this was I think part of the lessons learned when food for food for work fell into disfavor into much of the late early early part of the 1990s because too much of it was really top-down and included very large projects. When you're doing really large commercial road projects, the idea of paying people through food wages rather than labor wages is not terribly efficient. It's more, it's more appropriate when you're targeting the actual hungered people in a more community setting, more isolated from uh, uh, market opportunities. So, our food for work programs would typically be, uh, if they're in road area, would be maybe plowing or hand plowing a connecting road that allows a community that's slightly isolated to get to a main trunk road uh, and thus dramatically reduce time both for marketing as well as if in some cases to get water during out of season areas and things like that. So we very much shifted away from the really big physical infrastructure to the more community based infrastructure. We do do separately, sometimes a little bit bigger. We do, we do have separate from our food for work programs. We have very specialized activities that I, I wouldn't necessarily call them the resilience, although they potentially could be, that involve our logistics capacity because we have a very strong logistics capacity because food's a, a bulky commodity and moving it, particularly in emergency, requires a lot of logistical expertise. That logistics capacity has become a kind of comparative advantage. And in some cases, uh, governments or donors have relied on us in what we call special operations, which are cash-only operations in which we do do road projects. not super big highway projects, but slightly more extensive in the kind of community food for work activities that I'm talking about. We've done that in South Sudan under World Bank Trust Funds. We've done it in several other places. And that's in that area we do sometimes get, get involved in, in broader road projects. But transportation links are critical to obviously making a market reach somebody. I mean, uh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, infrastructure is important. Uh, no question about it in a broader resilient strategy. For your programs that are aimed at uh, building value chains, how much coordination and integration do you have with other donors that do similar activities in the same country? Um, we try to do a fair amount of that coordination. We work uh, closely also with our UN partners in many of these, FAO and EFAD, our other Rome agency uh, partners. Um, we try to pull together everybody that's working in that area for that crop commodity. What, what, what we found as we've gone in, I mean, because of what we buy, 
we're buying basic commodities, pulses and grains for the most part. And sometimes process oil, although that's not as likely to be done from local procurement, but it is sometimes. Um, a lot of the value chain development work for smallholders has been more high-end uh, fruits and vegetables, flour products, that their export, which are good and very helpful, but they're a little bit different than ours. So we do try to link up with people who are doing projects in those basic commodities that are similar to that and, and try to coordinate closely with them. predictors? Well, um, one of them, uh, some of it is self-assessment. We do surveys of people to say, do you feel they're more capable of coping? Others are uh, income, you know, income diversity or over, over time. Uh, in geographical targeted programs, we look at uh, when a next shock comes, it obviously takes longer to get those results, but when the next shock comes of a similar nature, for example, if you have a drought and you have a similar rainfall indication or similar level of drought severity uh, two years later and you've had a community you've targeted with these types of asset activities, uh, are there less people on the rolls? Are there less people that fall into the grounds of, of food insecure? Uh, obviously, these measures are longer term because resiliency is development by nature is a longer term development than sort of counting, um, you know, day-to-day -day consumption scores and that types of things. But those are the types of indicators that we're looking at. I know one of the P4P has one of our challenges is has been it, it specifically has indicators that Gates has required us to to monitor on, on increases in farmer income. Uh, which has proven to be a monitoring challenge because, in fact, what's your target group? How do you, who do you measure? Because in, in most cases, even in a P4P program, you're not going out to the individual farms. You're buying from farmers associations. You're buying from small-scale cooperative. There's, you still have measures to show that they're particularly targeted on smallholders and smallholder women. But just literally deciding, okay, if you're, if you're supposed to increase farmholder income, by 50%, say, over a three-year period, okay, who's your sample size? Is it every single member of the cooperative? You know, that type of thing. But those are the types of things that the methodological challenge, that's what we look at. We look at actual growth in income uh, as well as, you know, just tons, tons collected and sold and bought, that type of thing. Can you talk a little more about World Food Program's partnerships with some of the private companies? You mentioned that some are still just giving cash donations while others, like Pepsi and MasterCard, bring other assets to the table besides money. Can you talk about how you're building those partnerships and how World Food Program views those actors? Yeah, we, we're in a process of a fairly major review of our private sector partnership policies, so I can talk about where we are. Uh, we have historically wanted to make sure that all our private sector partnerships at least bring some cash to the table. Um, some of them are more exclusively cash-based and some bring more technical capacity along with them. 
Um, it it will depend in some respects, considerably respects, the nature of the industry and the partner. MasterCard's an interesting one because we haven't really been in financial services before, so they actually are bringing expertise. But historically, say, we've had a really active private sector engagement policy for about a little less than 10 years. Historically, the companies that are strongest in bringing both technical assistance and, and, uh, and cash um, in terms of the types of companies and partners <coughs> have been in the logistics, food processing, or nutrition fields for obvious reasons. Those are our, <coughs> our main operational activities and therefore the main areas we have advice. There is one other interesting partnership that has been very much technical capacity uh, that is a very different type, which is the Boston Consulting Group. This has been, many of you know, it's one of the big consulting firms. It's been one of our longest uh, partnerships. And the Boston Consulting Group has, for at least each of the last eight, nine years, I don't know how many years, uh, donates pro bono uh, a number of set hours of consulting time. And we've used BCG people on so many different areas of expertise, you know, and essentially using them as a consulting company, looking at a wide range of, of, of very specific narrow business processes like they would do in some companies, up to very big strategic issues. So I think we've been kind of a leader in, in sort of developing these corporate partnerships that are sort of a combination of <coughs> funding and sort of knowledge that is brought to the table. And actually, we just, as I said, just finished a, a major external, a major evaluation of our private sector strategy. And one of the main issues identified this in this was that perhaps we need to be more explicit in our policy and the implementation guidelines of these two aspects of the partnership. In other words, how much should we focus on that corporations in particular from a fundraising point of view and how much should it be focused primarily on the technical and knowledge expertise and what's the proper balance uh, in the relationship. That's, it's a constant challenge. I think our, our view is that the relationship in the view up to date has been, look, these partnerships are complex to manage and they take time and energy. And for it to be mutually beneficial for both organizations, it, 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 it can't just be about the expertise. There needs to be some money that comes with it. And so we have the current policy, and that may change under the review. We just have a new private sector partnership person, at least an interim one, selected, uh, just announced today. Uh, but we've been pretty insistent when people have come to us said, well, there's a certain minimum financial commitment for us to develop these kind of long-term long -term partnerships. But uh, yeah, that's, that's how they've, they've sort of worked. And I think the key, one of the key lessons we've learned out of this, I think it's sort of self-evident, but it's, you'd be surprised how many people in the nonprofit world who don't really know much about private sector partnerships don't come up with the self-evident is you have to have a fairly clear understanding of what you want out of the partnership. I mean, so many people, they just sort of go and, you know, they go to a PepsiCo and they say, you know, we'd like you to be a partner. What do you want to do? Well, you know, you don't, you need to know what, what are your bottom lines too? What, what, at what level does this partnership make it interesting and mutually 
mutually beneficial. I remember one of our earliest partners was a company called TNT, <coughs> since I think it's devolved but, and sold off in different parts. But it, it was a Dutch holding company uh, that essentially was bringing together a lot of packages. It was essentially trying to be kind of the FedEx UPS of Europe. It, that's an oversimplification. It had business in a number of other countries, but let's call it that. And it was one of our earlier, earliest types of these new partnerships. It was a combination of logistical expertise they brought to us, uh, the donations from their individual uh, staff members, and some corporate money from their corporate foundation. And sort of Somebody asked Peter Bacher, who was then the, the CEO at one of our big meetings, you know, well, what should we be looking for in our partnerships? And he proceeded to describe what they wanted from it, why they'd chosen it. They said, you know, we're a big holding company. We're buying a lot of new companies. We're trying to develop a common corporate standard. And frankly, it's easier to motivate people to bring people together with let's get together and get our logistical capacity to, uh, to solve world hunger than it is to let's deliver a package faster in a few days. So that was a, a benefit to them. He said, but you've got to know what you want out of this. You don't ask me what you want out of this partnership. You better know what you want out of this partnership so we can have a mutually beneficial uh, dialogue. And, and I think too often people, you know, they focus on partnerships of let's have a partnership, let's have an MOU, you know. I always like to say that to have an MOU, you first got to have a U. You got to have the understanding before you sign the memorandum. And I think a common problem in partnership development is, is you're, you're trying to score up and say, you know, we got to partner with somebody, you know, we got 12 partnerships. And somebody goes, well, what, what do you get out of those 12 partnerships? You have to know what you want out of it. In our case, we've decided that we'll take cash only. Uh, we'll take partnerships that involve both technical assistance and cash. and and because of our very operational nature, we may have a comparative advantage in attracting those kind of partnerships, but we don't do ones that are just, with rare, rare exceptions, because you never say never, there's always some small thing that's different. But uh, we don't do ones that just, just involve in-kind and, and, no, and no cash component. Okay, I'm gonna ask the last question, and it's gonna be a little bit different. Uh, going back to your career, yeah. uh, having worked for as a Foreign Service Officer in the State Department and having worked for the United Nations, what's the difference between working for the two? Sort of pros and cons, putting you on the spot here a little bit. Well, uh, in the World Food Program, of course, I'm a second careerist, but if I was talking to somebody who was coming in younger, uh, the biggest challenge, I think, is 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 the uh, the challenge on moving around and the and the difficulty of the places you have to serve. We are overwhelmingly. I mean, as I said, talked a lot about the resilience activities, but our biggest countries of operations are emergency or shock prone, fragile states. That means for a lifetime career in WFP, you're going to spend some years in difficult duty stations, probably at least one family, non-family duty station or more. Uh, the State Department does send you to play, I mean, obviously a lot of State Department officers go to Iraq and Afghanistan nowadays, but generally a diplomatic career in any country, including the State Department, is more likely to be in capitals, and even in difficult countries, the capital is often better than the deep field stations where WP has a lot of its presence. So from a long-term career perspective, I think you know, the first thing I ask people is, 
you know, is this a lifestyle you'd be comfortable with? Because if you're starting young, you're not, you're not going to be able to do a good career at WFP with, again, like always, a few exceptions and very highly specialized technical areas mm -hmm. if you're not comfortable with that. Um, difference between the state, other sort of more philosophical differences. Uh, you need to accept that um, multicultural, in a multicultural, multinational organization, nationality is an explicit component of job selection and career advancement. Uh, you, some people can say, well, it's, it's favoritism, but the UN has an explicit goal of having geographical diversity in its staff. It, it, it's not considered a sort of prejudice to fact to say, you know, we need more Ghanaians, we need more Americans, we need, nationality is a factor, a definite factor. Uh, you know, I've, it's like I say to white men in American systems, I'd say, quit whining. Being a white male American is still the most privileged person in the world. And yes, sometimes you might not get a job because you're not a woman. And sometimes you might not get a job because you're American. But I guarantee you that woman or that non-American, there's a lot more times he won't get a job or she won't get a job because she's not you than you won't get a job because you are you. So quit whining. But you need to explicitly accept that. I mean, there are, there are jobs that I know I cannot apply for as an American. In WFP, I'm a, what's called a D2. There is no way I can go higher than that in WFP because the director of the WFP is an American. It has been historically. It hasn't always been, but it has been for the last 20 some odd years, which means that her immediate subordinates, the assistant secretary generals, the next level down, which would be the next level up from me, she can't appoint an American. There's only four of them, and they have to be representative of other ge geographies. If I wanted to move up, I would have to go to another part of the UN, and that's, ex that's explicit. Institutionally, as I said earlier, I think, you know, I think WP as an operational entity is uh, is more American than, than most. But I think you you really need to really feel comfortable and be able to ad ad advance and thrive in a system that sometimes has different. And I don't mean different. You know, we think about different cultures, different values on a lot of things, and people think, you know, behavior and gestures and language, but different approaches to what management and organizational structure. The UN is more homogenized in a Western way than you would think. It's not like you're dealing with, I mean, it still pulls toward a kind of classic meritocracy model, but uh, many cultures have a much stronger emphasis on seniority. They have a much stronger emphasis on hierarchy. Uh, what we might think as being, the uh, UN has ethics codes and everything and they were important, but psychologically uh, a much stronger emphasis on sort of personal loyalties than, than, than straight meritocracies. I, I don't want to make them sound negative, it's, but I think you need to be, if you're not comfortable with multiculturalism and adjusting to those things, the UN isn't probably the right place for you. If you love them, I mean, I, I, if I, when I leave the UN, the thing that I will probably treasure the most of all, and I like the work, it's I mostly worked in Asia and, uh, and Europe in my foreign service career. It is the number of really strong friends that I've made from Africa. And, and my, you know, I have very many people who I think highly of in WFP, 
but maybe some of my strongest images are, are really strong professional Africans who have worked through. And I, so I've really enjoyed the diversity. But you, you do need to enjoy, enjoy both the positive and sometimes the challenging aspects of it. Um, if, if, if the UN is, I mean, it, you know, one man's diversity is another man's sort of culture of, you know, bureaucracy and difficulty and why isn't it all a meritocracy kind of thing. That's, that's kind of, you have to kind of live with both of it. That's a very long answer to probably what should have been a simpler <laughs> question. No, I thought that was good. Please join me in thanking Alan for being here today. But if you can live with all that, I do recommend the World Food Program. And the other big disadvantage, the other challenge is that it, uh, that I get frustrated with is that the absence for many of who come talk to me, a very clear entry pass. Uh, you know, there's things like JPOs, and a lot of people have to work with NGOs first. Somebody says, "How do I get a job at WP?" and it's it's a very decentralized process, and it isn't very clear for somebody who's coming in at the beginning stage. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I just want to actually understand. I've got to kind of yeah, talk. Yeah, I've got to run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope it was yeah, sort of along perfect. the lines of what exactly we're looking right. for. Thank you, thank you. Thanks. Exactly Wake me up, then I'll get back that thing off. Do you have time for a little podcast thing? Sure, sure. So we'll do, I'll ask, I'll ask you two questions. One about resiliency and one maybe the difference between sure, the UN and sure. the US. Sure, sure. a little bit. Yeah, I'll try to be. You want yeah. a cup of coffee? Uh, yeah, fresh enough. Fresh I'll enough get to you another one because there's some folks who probably want to talk to you. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a GW student. Oh, yeah. Just 